Hello and welcome to the St. Edmunds Podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today I've got a bit of a treat for you. It's Rick Body. He's going to be talking to us about the future of diagnostics. Rick knows more about this than anybody I know. He's going to be talking about why we have that probability uncertainty in what we do and how machine learning and artificial intelligence is going to change the way that we interpret, use and explain our diagnostic tests with our patients going to be great so have a listen to that and also you can go online and see the video and the slides on the St. Emlyn's blog site and also oh yes I wanted to mention the resuscitology conference on the 14th of December this year here in Manchester led by Cliff Reed from Sydney Hems and talking about those really challenging cases from pre-hospital through to intensive care that, that causes you know difficulties and understanding why that happens and seeking solutions it's, it's quite an intense conference. It's really good. It's got a great reputation when it's been run out in Australia, and we're delighted to see it here in Manchester. So again, you can book that through the website. So sit back, enjoy listening to Rick, and then pop over to the website and have a look at the slides, video, and maybe we'll see you in December. So if I'm going to talk about the future of uh, diagnostics in the emergency department, then I've got to talk about how things need to improve. So if I'm going to talk about how things need to improve, I need to find out what's wrong with what we're doing now. What's wrong with the way we're making diagnoses in emergency medicine right now? And that's quite hard to do because, actually, we make diagnoses all day long. It's what we do with diagnosticians. We, we make diagnoses um, of every single patient that we see. And it's kind of our bread and butter. So this is an x-ray. It shows a fractured fibula. It's pretty straightforward. Here's another x-ray. It's normal, no fracture. Here's an ECG, and this ECG shows an ST elevation myocardial infarction. See, the high lateral leads, you've got AVL ST elevation, T wave uh, being peaked. Look at lead one, those massive T waves. Look at the inferior leads, you've got reciprocal ST depression. That's a high lateral STEMI. Easy. This ECG is normal. This is chicken pox. This is psoriasis. And this, well, this is just normal, healthy skin. You see, diagnosis is easy, straightforward. We do it all the time. Once you've got a bit of knowledge, once you've learned to recognise the patterns, it's easy. It's what we do all the day. So how on earth are we going to get better? Well, just let's take a moment and think about what diagnosis actually is. And I'm going to be a little bit geeky and go back to the origin of the word diagnosis. So diagnosis is derived from two words in ancient Greek. The words are dia, which means apart, and gnosis, which means to know. So literally, diagnosis means to know them apart. And what's really interesting about this word, I hope you'll agree, is this part, that we use the word gnosis in there, because there are three words for knowledge in ancient Greek. The first is mathain. That's a kind of logical knowledge. You can work things out so you know them. And that's how we got the word mathematics. The second is skein. I think that's how you say it. Skein is a knowledge that you derive from observation. And that's how we got the word science. We know things are true because we've observed it. But gnosis is a different kind of knowledge. Gnosis is something deep and inherent. We can just know things. It's where we get the word recognise. In fact, there was a, a sect, a Christian sect, few hundred years after Jesus was alive, called the Gnostics. And these people believe, believed that the special ones in their sect, they had gnosis. They could just know things. 
So even though they lived a few hundred years after Jesus, they could just know that Jesus kissed Mary Magdalene. No one told them that. They hadn't seen it written down. They just knew it. And in a way, that rings a bell with maybe our approach to diagnosis. Maybe we're a little cocky. Maybe we think we know things, and we don't. Because sometimes we'll see this x-ray, and there will be a fracture. It's just not visible on the x-ray. And sometimes we'll see this ECG, and there will be an acute myocardial infarction. We know that very, very well. Nothing is black and white. There's always some uncertainty. Even William Osler recognised that more than a hundred years ago with this fantastic quote. Medicine's a science of uncertainty and an art of probability. And maybe that's what we're really doing when we're trying to make diagnoses. We're not really knowing what the condition is that the patient has most of the time. We're really learning how to use, how to make decisions under the conditions of uncertainty. And this is what William Osler said about it over a hundred years ago. But we're still doing it now. Handling that uncertainty is a matter of our own subjective clinical judgment. And it still is more than a hundred years later. But it could change. And that's what I'm going to talk about, is how we could <coughs> move towards a better way of handling... <coughs> excuse me, I should never have eaten those nuts. <laughs> handling uncertainty in our practice to make better decisions. And the doors that that's going to open for us in our practice to, to improve patient care. So I'm going to talk about my research. And my research focused on the early diagnosis of acute coronary syndromes. And I've been working on this for, no, must be, well, 13 years or more. We developed a clinical prediction model called TMAX, which speeds up the diagnosis of acute coronary syndromes and allows us to make better decisions based on a single blood test when patients come to the ED. And there are three things I want to tell you about TMAX here. Number one, it combines the patient's history, their physical examination, their ECG and their troponin all together. And it uses the information that we get from those things, just like we use them subjectively with our own clinical judgment, to calculate the probability of ACS. We do that. But the computer now does it for us, more objectively, more robustly. And then based on that probability, it assigns patients to different risk groups, rule in and rule out. So ultimately we make decisions about the patients. And here is how it works. So TMAX was derived by multivariate analysis, so the data showed us what combination of factors are best for making these early diagnoses. So the there are a few simple questions first. Does the ECG show acute ischemia? Let's say we just answer that. No. We'll tell the computer whether it shows acute ischemia or not. Is the patient visibly sweating? Let's say we say the patient's not visibly sweating. And there are four more questions just like that. Yes, no answers. Very simple to put into the computer. And then it asks us about the troponin. And I just want to pause on this for a moment because this is a slightly different question. No yes, no answer here. Now you might expect that we'd say, is the troponin positive or negative? And you can click yes or no. But it doesn't. It asks you to enter a number. So before we move on and talk about what TMAX does, I want to explain the reason for that. Because actually, when we call biomarker levels positive or negative, we lose masses of information. 
useful information that could really help us in our practice. Because biomarkers are continuous variables. The higher the level, the more likely it is that the patient has the condition for most biomarkers. This is unpublished data from our own research, which illustrates that, I think, quite nicely. It shows the troponin level when patients arrive in the emergency department and the proportion of patients with each troponin level that had an acute myocardial infarction. What you can see very nicely is that the lower the troponin level, the less likely it is that the patient has an acute myocardial infarction. Here's the normal range, it's 14. All of these people have a normal troponin, but it matters whether it's less than three or three to 14. Troponin is a continuous variable. The higher it goes, the more likely it is that they have an MI. And Tmax uses that. We should always use it in our practice, but we use it subjectively. Tmax uses it to calculate the probability. So based on all of that information, Tmax can very nicely calculate the probability that a patient has an acute coronary syndrome for us. Let's say it's 1.2%. And then we have to make some decisions. So it has to categorise patients. At some point, you can't 1.2% admit them and 98.8% discharge them. We have to make a decision. So in this case, the computer suggests we might rule out ACS and send that patient home. So that's our model, and we've shown that it works very nicely. So on validation, in 1,500 patients, we can see that in the low-risk group where we've ruled out less than 1% of patients had ACS and 40% of patients could go home after that one blood test. And in the high-risk group, when we said rule in, we were right more than 90% of the time. So it works. It's great. It's useful as a decision tool. But Tmax is more than just a risk score because I think this approach opens up some new doors for us, some new possibilities for patient care, and I want to tell you about them and how they might affect our practice, not just with ACS, but with other conditions too. So the first thing I want to talk about is shared decision-making. So Tmax calculates that probability of ACS for us, and at the moment, we expect that clinicians have a look at that probability and then use it to make their clinical decisions, but we don't show the patients. Oh no, that's not for them to know. But what if we did? Show our patients, tell the patients the probability. We know that when patients with chest pain are given a chance to engage in shared decision-making, that they know more about their care, they play a more active role in the decisions about their health care, and they more often choose to go home without any more tests. They don't seem to have any worse outcomes. Maybe the patients have a more realistic attitude to risk than clinicians. Maybe that's a future of sustainable health care to share decisions and allow them to input their values and preferences. But we don't need Tmax, we don't need calculated probabilities to do that. So what's the advantage? Well, the advantage is that we can truly personalise that process. If you're going to engage in shared decision-making, you need to be as informed as possible about what the risks and benefits are of each approach. And with an algorithm like Tmax, we can do that. We can share that probability with the patients and they're fully informed. We ran some patient groups to ask patients, yeah, but if we allowed patients to engage in shared decision-making, surely there's a risk at which, you know, the risk is too high. You know, it gets to 5%. We shouldn't let patients have any say in whether they go home or not after that because it's just so silly to go home. We know they need admission. And they told us, no, we should do shared decision-making for everyone, no matter what the risk. Really interesting concept, because then we might have people who decide to go home even though their risk is quite high. Then again, they decide to smoke. 
So long as they're informed, they understand it, and we support them in their decisions to do whatever we can to maximize their health despite that decision, well, who's to say that's not a bad thing? So shared decision-making is one thing that we could do with this probabilistic approach to clinical care. What about theranostics? Anyone know what theranostics means? <laughs> I haven't just invented it, honestly. It's also called precision medicine. So when patients have cancer, they often get treatment according to this approach. So they get a biopsy, and the biopsy will tell us what kind of chemo, what kind of treatment might, that cancer might respond to. That's precision medicine or theranostics, where we use the diagnostic test to select the appropriate treatment for the patients. And we can apply that in the emergency department too. And the, the approach of calculating the probability of disease can really help us with theranostics. So here's our usual approach. We'll run some tests, and then based on those tests, we make a diagnosis. If the patient has the diagnosis, we'll give them treatment for that diagnosis. And if they don't have the diagnosis, then we don't give them treatment. That's what we normally do. But with the new approach, it's subtly different. We don't make a diagnosis. We calculate the probability that the patient has the diagnosis because we know that's what we're realistically going to do anyway. There's always going to be some uncertainty. And then we decide, at some point, the probability of disease has to be so high that the benefits of the treatment will outweigh the risk accepting that some people don't have the diagnosis and are going to get treatment. Overall, there's benefit for the patients. And then we prescribe the treatment. And that's a very different approach to what we're doing now. We've done this in ACS. So I work with Charlie Raynard, one of our junior doctors. And uh, we've done a, uh, Charlie's done loads of work on this. It's great. It's going to be out uh, soon in the literature. And worked out, based on the literature, what's the probability threshold at which patients would benefit more from ticagrelor than having risks. And it's at 8%. Once your probability gets above 8%, you'll benefit more from having ticagrelor than you will from just having aspirin. And you can update that probability as more information comes along, of course, and stop the treatment when it's appropriate to do so. But that's what we could do. Theranostics, the second possibility. But you know, at this point, I should just stop. Because I reckon there's a few people who might just be thinking, what on earth is he on about? TMAX is just another risk score. I mean, we've got Barbara Bacchus in the audience. Maybe you're thinking this, Barbara. We've got the heart score. We've got the Timmy score. We've got the EDAX score. TMAX is just one of the risk scores. What makes me think that TMAX is any better than all of the rest? Why should we believe that? Why should you believe that? Well, I'm not trying to convince you that you should. Because I don't think that Tmax is the perfect algorithm either. We've not found the golden bullet to diagnose ACS. Of course, our data fits the, our data sets as well as it possibly can. We know that it's best in the patients that we've studied. But I don't know if it's going to work in Texas, in Australia, in Angola. I don't know. But I do know that using this approach, we can make it the best algorithm that we know it could be at any particular moment in time by applying artificial intelligence. And TMAX lends itself to that. So we're in the middle of a project where we're going to use artificial intelligence to evolve this TMAX algorithm. It took us 12 years, or well, 13 years, to get this far of doing study after study, and that's a long time, it's very inefficient. But once we've implemented TMAX, and we're going to do so in 12 hospitals across Greater Manchester, 
We'll collect all of the data on the computer automatically. That will build up a database of around 30,000 patients per year. What we then need to do is find out what happened to the patients. And nowadays we can link the data to the patient's health record, and find out what really happened. And using that data, that massive data set, we can evolve the algorithm. So we might find subgroups of patients where Tmax doesn't work, but we can evolve the algorithm to make it work for them too. We can make the algorithm different in Blackburn than it is in Stockport, if it needs to be. The data will always tell us how we can best make diagnoses based on the data that we have available. And that will bring us to truly personalised medicine. So that's the third advantage of this approach. And the fact that we have an algorithm where we have a complex equation behind it lends itself to this approach really well. It can evolve. The, the, the uh, numbers in the equation can change very nicely based on the data as they accrue. So there's three things, three benefits to using probabilities in our practice. Next one, what if we don't have all of the information? So there are paramedics in the audience and you might be thinking, well, Tmax can only be used when you've got a lab troponin. So not really relevant to me because we're, we're in the ambulance and we don't have that luxury. How are we going to use it to make decisions? Well, with these prediction models, we can have different models at every stage of the patient's journey to calculate the probability and we can update it as more data become available. So, for example, in chest pain, we could start off with a history only max decision aid, which could be used for telephone triage or it could be used for self-triage via a health app. And it will calculate a probability that's provisional, that calculates what's the next most valuable piece of information and where the patient should go. We could update that when we get an ECG in the ambulance or a point of care troponin test. We can update that when we get a lab troponin test and we can update that when we get a second one if we need it. All of the time we're adding more information and getting a more accurate calculation of the patient's probability of disease. Dynamic prediction modelling. Another thing that you might say is, well, hang on a minute, we've talked about Tmax all the time, um, but one of the curious things about Tmax is it doesn't take account of a patient's risk factors. The heart score does. It tells us about, you know, if you've got more risk factors, then you're at higher risk. Same as Timmy's score. If you've got more risk factors for ischemic heart disease, it gives you a higher risk score. And that feels intuitive to us because we know that those risk factors make it more likely that patients will develop coronary artery disease. So why aren't they in Tmax? Well, first of all, it's based on the research, based on the data. So we did some research to look at the predictive value of risk factors in the emergency department and you will never see a more perfectly useless rock curve than this. <laughs> Area under the curve, 0.49. Risk factors really don't seem to help us in the emergency department, but clinicians like it. You know, in the EDAC score, they did the same thing and they found that risk factors were useless, but they put them in anyway because the clinicians wanted it to be there. They thought it was important. But why is it so useless? We all think there should be something in it, but the data tell us otherwise. And maybe it's because the most dangerous risk factors that you can have are the ones you don't even know you've got. If you're treated for your hyperlipidemia and it's managed, well, maybe it's not a risk factor anymore. But if you've got familial hyperlipidemia and you don't even know about it and it's not treated, that's the real risk factor. But we won't recognise it as a risk factor because the way we recognise them in the ED is by asking the patients what risk factors they have and looking at their health record. So how do we get around that? There must be something in risk factors. 
Or maybe it's in the genes. I don't know if you saw this covered in the media, but a group for, uh, who studied a huge data set at the UK Biobank developed a polygenic risk score, identifying a series of genetic mutations that can predict the development of coronary artery disease. And here you've got a good area under the curve, 0.81. And if you're in the top 8% of people for this risk score, you're more than three times as likely to develop coronary artery disease. Well, that's really significant. That's more than familial hyperlipidemia. Maybe this is the future. Maybe this is what we should be doing instead of just measuring blood pressure or asking if people are taking antihypertensives. Maybe this is what we need. But now you're thinking, hang on a minute. This is the emergency department. We don't do genetic tests in the emergency department. But we do. Oh, we could. This is a point-of-care test manufactured by GeneDrive, spun out from the University of Manchester, and it tests for a genetic mutation, and they reckon they can do it in as little as 20 minutes from a buccal swab. And we're using this right now to test for a mutation in the neonatal intensive care unit. Babies there get gentamicin when we suspect sepsis, but a very small proportion of them have a genetic mutation that means they'll get ototoxicity and deafness, often profound deafness. It's irreversible for their whole life. If we could test for that mutation in the NICU before we give gentamicin, it would save all that deafness. We could never do that before because it took three days to get the test, but now we can do it in 20 minutes. Maybe we can apply that across medicine in emergency departments. Maybe we could test for a polygenic risk score in patients who present with chest pain if we haven't already done that polygenic risk score in primary care. And maybe that will make our risk factors, our background risk, predictive of what's actually going on now. And then I suppose that takes us on nicely to think about long-term risk. Because if you're thinking about doing genetic tests and you might think I'm crazy in the emergency department, well then we might identify things that predict long-term risk of disease and that kind of turns us off as emergency physicians. We're really only interested in what's going on right now. We're not interested in the long-term. But should we be? So we asked our patients this question and they repeatedly tell us that what we've got to do with these early rule-out strategies is not just rule out what's going on now, but predict what's going to happen in the future. Give them some advice about ways to stay healthy. We consistently scored low on that in patient satisfaction scores. They want to know about their long-term risk. And you know what? We can do that in the ED. Even without genetic testing, we measure blood pressure in virtually everybody. If it's high in the ED, we often think it's because of pain or anxiety, but that's a myth. 70% of people who have a single high level of blood pressure in the ED will remain hypertensive at follow-up. Maybe we should be doing something about that. Maybe this is a great opportunity. 22 million emergency department attendances occur in England and Wales every year. Often that will be their only contact with healthcare and our only opportunity to intervene. And as we're doing more rapid rule-outs in the emergency department, which used to be the job of, of inpatient teams, those inpatient teams would follow patients up and manage the long-term risk. Now who's going to do it? Maybe it's us. And maybe there's a benefit for our patients if we do give them advice about their long-term risk and ways to stay healthy. So maybe the future looks like this. A patient has chest pain. They open their smartphone. Seriously. They check their app. They self-triage. The self-triaging app applies the algorithm to calculate the probability of ACS provisionally and works out what's the next most important piece of information for the patient. Is it to have a video consultation with a doctor or is it to have an ambulance? 
maybe if they send an ambulance, maybe the ambulance comes out, does a point of care test, applies a prediction model, updates that probability calculation, and again uh, decides what to do with the patient. And maybe attending type 1 emergency departments with chest pain is a thing of the past because you either have ACS and you go to cardiology or you're allowed to stay at home. And maybe this is the key, maybe all patients at every stage in the journey should be given the opportunity to engage in shared decision making. And maybe when we do finish our contact with the patients, we should update their health app, we should give them advice, access to, to educational materials that give them uh, advice about ways to stay healthy. Maybe we should be recommend, making recommendations about primary prevention, which could be automated. And that would allow us to get to a future that's personalized, sustainable, and I think really exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Just before you go, we've got a small favour to ask. Since 2012, we've funded the blog and the podcast and everything around it from our own funds. And it's been great. We've really enjoyed doing it. But the blog and the podcast have grown. And now we've got such bandwidth and such people contacting us from around the world and listening that it's actually starting to get quite expensive. So if you feel like you can contribute even a tiny amount, then just whiz onto the blog, look on there, and you can make a small donation or even subscribe on a regular basis, even a small amount of cash might make a big difference and help us keep St. Emlyn's free, open access medical education. Thank you for your time.